What's up, everybody? This is your co-host, Posh. And I'm Pat. And this is the Founder Hour podcast. We're here with Matt O'Connor, the founder of AdQuick. Matt, thanks for having us. Thank you guys for coming over. This is exciting. So just quickly, I want to give some background on how this moment happened. Uh, we were, this was sometime last year in 2018, and Pat and I were doing our regular outreach to a bunch of folks, and I I had been in contact with Alexis Ohanian a few times, and I had asked him about you know the podcast, the Founder Hour, and his involvement, and he told me, look, I love it. If I'm in LA, I would love to be a part of it, but I'm not. I'm in LA. And so he said, there's a lot of founders that I do work with, and one that I think that you guys would really love to sit down with is Matt O'Connor, the founder of AdQuick. And so I'm a big fan of Alexis, and instantly Pat and I agreed we're going to make this happen. So here we are. We're excited to have you on and hear your story and your upbringing. So let's just dive straight into it. Tell us a little bit about where you started from, where you came from, where you were born. Yeah, so born in Houston, um, so lived there for only about four or five years until my family moved to the D.C. metro area, uh, a.k.a. the DMV for folks from there. Um, So grew up outside of D.C. uh, through uh, high school, then graduated and went out to Indiana to Notre Dame for undergrad. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of upbringing is is kind of broad, so I can go into any specific aspect. But um, yeah, that's a high level. I'm curious, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you're oh, probably some sort of sports star. Sports. Uh, Sports was like my main thing. Um, School was fine, but kind of easy. What kind of sports did you play? Every always on two or three. I'm getting hockey vibes from you. No, no, I can barely not skate, at all. But like two or <laughs> I was three more surfing vibes. But <laughs> since I've been out here, I'm getting yeah, yeah. like longer hair. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. actually we're now in opposite. Venice, but yeah. back there, yeah, not we so much surfing. We are in Venice Beach, but uh, yeah, it was you know soccer team, football team, basketball team, like as many sports as my parents could sign me up for mm-hmm. at a time. So was always really a hyper competitive person, mm-hmm. and I'm I don't know. Uh, I guess the audience can't see, but I'm you know five nine and one fifty. I don't have any like particular physical gifts so i always had to kind of be tougher scrappier like and, and it's kind of that we, realization that a kid has like every kid has is like damn i'm not gonna make it to the nba like yeah just, well no wasn't how, wes welker from the patriots five nine one fifty well yeah he so that, the odds. that position didn't really exist at right. the time there wasn't this like yeah. slot back yeah, yeah. that was like super quick if yeah. it had existed i might have had a, a future in football but <laughs> there you go so you um you go to Notre Dame and you study political science. Political right? science, yep. Um, what was what did you what was your vision with doing that? Like, what was the plan after college? Oh no, plan. It was like eighteen years old. You have to choose a major, and I liked reading and was from DC and and had yeah. some family in the legal realm. So I thought that was kind of like a a feeder to that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like a a master plan of any kind. Yeah, and was your was your family like hard on you at all and like go to law school or go to this or that or it was kind of just like figure it out yourself. Um, there wasn't any prescription. Uh, I mean, growing up, it was like, you better get good grades. Yeah. And if you don't like, we're going to have issues, but, yeah. um, were you a good student? I got good results. I wouldn't say I was like, you know, organized or diligent and, um, school, like you could kind of play the game and get a pretty nice outcome for a, a very, a lot lower effort. That was my approach yeah which is i wouldn't call it a good student it was just kind of like all right how do i kind of win this game sort of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um you so you want so you 
graduated and you kind of had this vision to go to law school? Is that right? You were paralegal? I was on the fence. Yeah. yeah. So like I have a, a bunch of family who either have their law degree or practicing attorneys. So it was kind of like yeah. there was some gravity there. Yeah. But I didn't want to go right to law school. As I told I'm not like yeah. thrilled about going to three more years of school. Right. So I was yeah. like, let me do something else. So and I'm so grateful I did because A, it was a really cool experience. Like at that firm, we ended up going to India for this really unique case and well. and so that paralegal experience, while for the most part pretty boring and, and helping me realize I didn't want to go into law school, had some cool things that really opened up my eyes. Then, uh, you know, I realized I didn't want to go to law school, but I started to have a passion for business. And that's one really cool thing about the legal side yeah. is you get the, and we were an antitrust law firm. So we got to see into the guts of like the MasterCard, Discover, antitrust case. So we're seeing these emails mm -hmm. from high-level business people that you don't get exposure to a lot. And I was like, man, these guys are dealing with some interesting problems. I'd rather be doing that. Than and what, like was the, what was the passion? That, like, can you explain what that was like for business? Because like, was it more like on the entrepreneurial, like I want to build something side? Or was it more like I just want to be in that kind of action of like negotiating and just like this and that? And like what was – yeah? At that point, it was more – um, it was more just that I liked the problems that it felt like our clients were dealing with rather than what our firm was dealing with, which was very kind of nitpicky, yeah. you know, legal statutes and litigation letters. And, and that was like lame. You wanted to be in the weeds. Like, yeah, you wanted I wanted to deal with where the action was. Yeah. And so then I, I figured out kind of high level I wanted to be there. And then when I was leaving the firm, I actually, uh, had an idea and started a company that didn't really go anywhere, but um, that How was. How old were you? Uh, at that point, probably 24 or 5, mm -hmm. probably 25. Um, I had this idea, it was called Footprint Free, and, which was basically to calculate and offset businesses' footprint, carbon footprint mm -hmm. by them investing in enough trees to absorb that footprint. Um, so in starting that, I realized I didn't know jack shit about business. Yeah. Hence the, okay, I should probably learn something about business if I'm going to go into this. Right. And that like was the why idea obviously was, sounded great. Like, I mean, that's like sustainability and it's a huge thing and it's, it's continue, continuously growing. But like the business side for, for it didn't seem to make sense, right? I didn't know anything. Yeah. yeah. Like so, how is this going to make enough money to survive, right? Type of thing. Yeah. So that's yeah. when it was like, all right, I better learn about this if, I, if I'm going to go into it. Yeah. And uh, with my background, I didn't know anything about the X's and O's. So that's why I think business school was good for me in yeah. particular, but I'd actually not advise it for the vast majority mm -hmm. of, of people. Matt, before we get into the business school chapter of your life, I'm curious, and I was just kind of sitting here doing some calculations. So if you were 24, 25, you probably graduated Notre Dame around 21, 22. So you were working for what, two, three years? Uh, yeah. So I was at the uh, law firm for about three years. Yeah. Were, was there ever a period of uncertainty? Like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? What am I doing here? Do I like working for other people? Like, how the fuck do I get out of this? Literally day one. Like, yeah. literally day one, I show up and they're like, I didn't even know what a paralegal really was yeah. or did. I just knew it was kind of like the entry-level non-legal uh, degree thing. So, uh, it's, yeah. it's the majority of the legal work, though. Yeah, like the grunt work and the, yeah. and the bullshit uh, yeah. stuff. But, um, yeah, I showed up and they're like, hey, can you uh, format all these binders? And I'm like, sure, I guess if that's my job, I'll just do it. But I realized very early on in that that I didn't want to do that for a long time. And then 
as I spent more time, I realized I didn't even want to do what my bosses were doing and yeah, their right. bosses were doing. Right. So, so then I'm kind like, of thinking ahead, like, is that my path? And it's like, yeah, does, exactly. You me. see what the person who's gone to law school is doing. You're yeah. working with them right. and you don't want to be doing that. So you right. better. Right. And you have a degree from Notre Dame. I mean, is there anything you wanted to be doing besides that? Plenty of things. But at that point, it was kind of like I didn't know. Uh, you know, I didn't know what a, being a paralegal was like. You you haven't really worked in these uh, like in the real world, so right. yeah. y- in my mind, you kind of have to make some mistakes. Um, but thankfully, I made a mistake that I, you know, when people go to law school, oftentimes they feel obligated to practice because they need to pay back yeah. mm-hmm. loans, oh, yeah. and they're like, "All right, my life's going to suck for fifteen years. I'm going to hate my job because right. I need to pay this back." Right. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad i didn't have to go down that route luckily and i was not one of those people i'm i was, wasn't gonna go there but uh, yeah, you know yeah, it seems like you yeah, kind of found yeah. other options i wanted to immediately get out of it and just focus on building something else obviously because it was just too much and like you i had the realization later though of like i don't want to be doing what that person was doing up there you know it wasn't as glorified as it seemed yeah so was it after that first business that you started and it, it you 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 shut it down before you went to business school? No, I. So I really just went into business school with the idea. I see. I see. Okay. Um, and worked on it in on the side, and then during the summer between my first and second year, got it live. And basically, the realization was that small businesses liked it, but corporate businesses couldn't come on. Um, and and the ultimate idea was that there would be enough businesses who had this credential that mm-hmm. it would be sort of like either a. a built into Yelp or a way people would decide where to go eat is where, where businesses have opted in yeah. uh, to being uh, footprint free was yeah. our kind of trademark. But um, ultimately, they weren't going to come on wholesale. So it was something where I didn't want to dedicate 10 more years to kind of slog at this thing. I wanted to kind of move on. So that was the the decision after business school. Mm-hmm. I had I basically uh, pulled the plug on that and, and moved on. And what was your biggest takeaway from business school? Hmm. I mean, I think the biggest thing is it gives you a uh, cross-functional competence of almost any area of business. Mm -hmm. So I think like Darden in particular does a really good job getting you exposure to operations, to accounting, to finance, to management. Yeah. So you're rare. A, you're aware uh, of all these different things that that you can be thinking of as as a business owner. Um, but B, when you're confronted with it, it's kind of like, oh, I've seen this before. And so what they the, the method they use at Darden is called the case method. So you're literally digging into the weeds of a business case that's applicable to whichever accounting finance mm-hmm. um, strategy, et cetera. So you've kind of gone into the weeds in this hypothetical situation at least before. So then when you see it in the real world, you have a little bit more grounding. So it's not the first time you're facing those different challenges. Yeah. What was something that you did not expect that occurred in business school? You went to University of Virginia Darden, like you mentioned. Was there just something that you were like, I didn't think that that was going to happen while I was here, whether positive or negative? Yeah, I I think on the positive side, and and this goes back to me saying, you know, to a lot of people, don't go to business school, Mm -hmm. is we had what a small six-person team called a learning team who basically helped one another learn and kind of share ideas around the coursework. So in my team, I was taking the same intro to accounting class as somebody with their CPA. Yeah, I was taking the same intro to finance class as three CFAs, which is like mm-hmm. chartered financial analysts, one of the kind of higher objective fina- uh, financial mm-hmm. kind of uh, 
certifications. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there taking the same. I have these personal tutors who are like best in class in their fields. So that was like, holy shit, this is like an amazing learning experience. And I kind of took undergrad a bit for granted from an academic perspective, as I kind of alluded to earlier. So I made sure that in business school, I was like, I'm going to learn more than anybody else in my entire class. And I, I took the academic side actually really seriously I think that's the biggest thing too is like just that open mind, sorry, that open mindedness of like um, just kind of going into something and being open to learning as much as you can. Because especially for someone like you in that at that time where you kind of weren't sure of which direction you were going in, it's like I'm just going to absorb as much as I can and then kind of figure it out from there. I think the biggest uh, you know um, draw uh, like a fallback or drawback for a lot of people is that like they don't they're not, you know, they don't realize that in order to like know what direction to go in, you got to know what all those directions are in a, in a way to be able to, you know, know which one is good for you and which one is bad for you or like, right? Yeah. So like, yeah. Yeah. You've got to know what's on the menu before you, you make your order. Exactly. Uh, so I, I totally agree. And, and you got to make some mistakes. Matt, were you working while you were studying for your MBA? Uh, no. So I did the full time two year. I mean, working on the business. Which um, was the carbon the footprint, footprint free, yeah. Uh, but other than that, no. What happened to that business? Basically, kind of got it off the ground, like launched it, got it to a little bit of revenue, uh, but really pretty small scale, and kind of realized that a lot of our distribution and scaling I- ideas around that were not going to pan out. And so, going back to any company with mul- with chain presence or high quantity of presences and, and physical footprints weren't that interested in coming on board. So once I realized that, it was going to have to be a door-to-door mom and pop all the way to scale, which would have been mm-hmm. a brutal mm-hmm. uh, path. I mean, there are companies who have done it, and yeah. kudos to them, but that's, I think, a lot of times when people are like, this is my life's mission, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do that, and I just didn't have that feeling with with that idea. So I said, great, I've learned how to take something from idea to uh, launch and a little bit of revenue. Now let me try to get involved with a business that is has traction and is scaling. And so that was why I, I was looking at Instacart as one of these companies that had this initial traction and is at the beginning of scale. And that's why I was attracted to them. And how did you get involved with Instacart? So this is like right around the time when they started? Um, yeah, so they, well, they were post-Series A, so it was okay. between 15 and 20 people. Um, they I were had, in Silicon Valley? They were based in SF, uh, still are, and uh, I was on the East Coast. They were expanding and... I had done a um, actually a grocery delivery case study at Darden mm-hmm. and realized that the last mile unit economics were terrible when done traditionally with box trucks and owning the infrastructure. Instacart basically had this ingenious crowdsource model that eliminated any of those fixed costs and capital requirements. So, mm-hmm. a they had you know some great pre- press. B I had kind of looked into that industry before, and they had this expansion role that was right up my alley. So I actually started in Boston. Um, and I didn't, I didn't go to SF for multiple months afterwards. And I worked remotely for the most part mm-hmm. with that, with Instacart. What was your role? Uh, the title was either expansion or expansion manager throughout the period of time, but it ended up being, um, if we were, uh, expanding geographically, we would be yeah. focused on that, but then we were flexible. We could go to different markets. So we became sort of this team of fixers mm-hmm. that would just go into New York city and help fix the logistics or, 
fly into Austin and kind of we we would call it deploying for four months and and yeah. fix the profitability playbook there. Got it. So um, like Instacart was already active in those areas. You you you're kind of going into well o- over time. It over was time. In, it was in two but markets when I started launching new cities too. Yeah, yeah, the first nine months were spent. We rattled off like I think twelve expansion markets. Mm-hmm. So eight months after I started, we went from two to. Uh, 12 to 15 markets. Then we would sort of cycle back into some of the markets that we either wanted to run experiments in or needed different assistance um, and kind of fix them. Yeah, I've had some friends that have like been involved with different companies doing like, you know, similar stuff. And like, I I think one of them was at DoorDash, the other was like Bird. And from what I've seen, it's like such a really cool, like as far as like, if you're like an entrepreneurial person, it's kind of like running, building and running your own small business within like a larger company, right? Like yeah. you're, you're managing all these different things. What was that? I mean, how was that experience? I guess, uh, how has that kind of fed into your personal like? Yeah, theme? I mean, <laughs> that experience was one of a kind. I got to take all this stuff I learned in a classroom and put it into practice right away. Um, it was amazing. You know, front row seat to a hyper growth company where – yeah, and in particular, our roles, you're the first people launching the market. So yep. it does feel like you're kind of um, – you are that that kind of CEO of that market. And mm-hmm. you have a small team that's the only people on the ground there. So that's how, kind of how we felt in that expansion. So we learned a ton. It, we had to because we were responsible. The, like the responsibility level you get is incredibly high. And you're just kind of drinking from the fire hose. So – it was interesting where a lot, I took the path less traveled at a business school. Mm-hmm. A few within a few years, we started to hire my MBA classmates who had gone the traditional route yeah. and were like investment working banking. at a CPG yeah. or, or investment banking. Consulting. And like, this fucking yeah. sucks. Like yeah. I'm pushing papers. Nothing I do really matters. Yeah. Um, I'm not really learning that much. So I think a few years out, a lot of people uh, and my classmates sort of started to see that hey, doing more entrepreneurial stuff is a lot more. Uh, interesting. And when did you have that entrepreneurial bug? What, did it start early on or did it kind of start when you were you know, deeper into your career? Um, I was always thinking about ideas. I don't have that like paper boy story that, you know, I was doing six routes or, or, or like, you know, you know un- unfortunately not just was always doing sports, but I really, it first started, I started a really, uh, the first new leg of a charity bike ride. Mm-hmm. In New York, while I was, I think at, he did something like that too—a charity yeah, biker. Yeah. yeah, yeah, from LA to DC. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't ride. Okay, I was part of the team that helped organize it. Okay, I mean, so, so this group of uh, rides is a hundred miles, single day. Yeah, right. That's um, how ours was, yeah. And so I had gone and done this from DC to Delaware, so where I'm from. Guys who went to my high school started it, and I said, "Hey, we should have this in New York City too." So while I was at the law firm. I started the next leg of it, and I didn't even own a bike. I didn't know what I was doing. Can go into that, but it was basically kind of a a fly by the seat of our pants. But at the end of it, I was like, wow, I did that. I started something new, and there was this kind of like creation experience that I hadn't really been exposed to before, and I loved it Mm -hmm. and kind of felt more empowered that I can just create things from scratch. Like I don't have to let other people tell me I can do it. I don't need to be an expert in it like so it was really kind of an empowering thing it was just this little it was like 25 people biking 100 miles now it's going on you know it's a few hundred people and it's gotten a lot bigger but at that point it was like wow I, I yeah. it's this addiction to creation kind of thing right Matt when you were at Instacart what was your mindset like were you happy that you were there or 
in your mind, did you know that it was almost a means to do something else, a platform for you to go on? Can and it do be both? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why I asked you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it was. I, I think it was definitely both. Like, I was just trying to be a sponge mm-hmm. there, just trying to do the best I could for the company. And I think, really, like that first. I mean, when I look back at what they built, and, and in particular, like the first fifty people, it was such a high caliber group of people that were all extremely high ownership, and we all felt like us against the world. It was such a cool experience. So from a team building to an operational perspective, like it's the ne- next best thing to starting a company on your own, which um, so learned a ton. And, and that's what I would highly recommend for people who are thinking about starting their own thing. Like if you don't, don't force an idea, you know, you don't always have that idea that, that really is like insatiable inside to start. So get the next best thing and find out about what it's like to go from that early stage to a few hundred people. Like, you, that's a huge challenge in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Then there's another battle that's like having this idea that you can get from zero to, to 15 or 20 people. So, And like the biggest thing is you're learning on someone else's dime, essentially. That's like you're not, piece, you know, yeah. you're not in, you're not, you're not yeah, in charge. Yeah, as bad of, as it sounds, but I mean, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. And, and yeah. you're not taking much of the risk. Like I had a, a salary when I started and I wasn't worried about like, you know, feeding myself. When you start from scratch and you force some idea that you might not be that passionate about, like, Every decision is like affects your pockets. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. So you can yeah. do it in a much less risky fashion, and by it, I mean really kind of become an entrepreneur. Right. Um, cool. So what? I guess so. You were on the East Coast at this time. Well, we were nomadic. So I mean, oh, I started you're, you're, in Boston, then we yeah. did DC, New York, Austin, Atlanta. So Miami. what brought you to LA? Um, so just before starting AdQuick, I actually went to work at Amazon. Okay. Um, in LA or Seattle? In Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. So I went up there, um, when we were starting, um, AdQuick, I knew I didn't want to stay in Seattle. Um, so it was really between SF and LA and maybe Austin. LA is a great microcosm of our industry with media buyers and outdoor media owners here. Mm -hmm. Um, the weather's obviously incredible and I had... Uh, lived in SF a little bit and wasn't like thrilled about it. It was you were like attached expensive. to the yeah. system there. And yeah. you know when when I was getting started, I didn't know how long it was going to be before I was going to get paid. Yeah. So it ended up being nine months or so, but it could have been twelve. It could have been fifteen. Yeah. And so finding a livable solution in LA on no salary was a lot more feasible mm-hmm. than than San Francisco. So And this was like not like it was like a few years ago, right? This Two, three is years uh, ago. mid 20 July 2016, 2016 is when I left uh, Amazon. So yeah, that's And that's I'm kind of right around the time when you started AdQuick, right? So yeah. did, did the idea, I guess what inspired the idea for AdQuick and did you have the idea while you were at Amazon? Um no, I, I had had some form of the idea for 7 or 8 years uh, when I had the business called Footprint Free at Darden. Um I started to try to get outdoor advertising to promote our restaurant partners. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I realized how painful and confusing and slow and expensive the outdoor ad buying experience was. So it's kind of perplexed and ended up getting friends to put a do-it-yourself ad on their balcony. And was the big problem that you were going direct to, like, for example, like outdoor outfront or like one of those companies that own the billboards or what was like, what was the hardest, most challenging part of that process? Yeah. Finding who owned the inventory and what the pricing was and whether it was available. So even the existing companies now don't have that information easily Mm -hmm. accessible. You have to do a bunch of Googling, contact us forums, 
probably get on the phone with four or five of them just to see, is this available? And I knew exactly where the location was I wanted, yeah. but it took all this extra legwork. Mm. So that's what we're fixing at AdQuick. And was that because I can imagine like it's a pretty competitive space with who owns these billboards, right? Like as far as, you know, I own this billboard on this corner and then this other company, my rival company owns this billboard. So was that because they don't want to put that information out there to create some sort of like, you know, price war or anything like that? Or Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of um, concern around uh, price visibility and integrity. Yeah. Uh, I think it's actually a... Uh, an, er- an error, a misconception on their part. I think the excess uh, friction they add by being opaque mm-hmm. actually keeps fewer people from even considering the channel. And then when you look at the breakdown of the marketing spend, out of home is one of the smaller channels, 3%, $8 billion. So large billion-dollar market, but it's only 3% of ad spend should be much higher in our opinion. But because there's sort of these fiefdoms that are hidden from easy discovery and consumption, uh, it keeps their market share a lot lower than we think it should be. So quite logically, you make anything easier to do, people are going to do more of it. And so you make it easier to buy outdoor advertising like AdQuick is doing, Mm -hmm. people are going to buy more of it. And and we're starting to see that with almost all of our customers. I remember funny enough, it was I think a a year and a half or two years ago, Pat and I were talking about different advertising kind of uh, platforms. And I think on our next segment, which is going to come out tomorrow. We'll talk about the future of advertising with you. But we were talking about billboards and how like those are still so relevant. And I remember we were in his garage going back and forth about billboards. And I was like, dude, especially in LA, there's millions of cars just driving the 405, the 110. Like That and we had seen like advertisements way. on buildings too, like, you know, just yeah. buildings selling yeah. on their walls. And I was like, I think it was one of the like, stories wow. of, I think it was a Tom story where yeah, the right. founder of Tom's, I think, Oh Originals yeah, yeah, started, yeah. Like you know, on on buildings. So um, so we thought that was cool. So as soon as we saw that you were doing that, we we're like, oh, dude, I knew there was something with billboards. We gotta we gotta talk to this guy. Yeah. So yeah. so what's been the biggest like challenge getting AdQuick off the ground? I guess back when you started it, are you in time? Oh yeah. I mean, initially it's like uh, convincing a group of people who have the right skill sets to do the, what seems like kind of a daunting, crazy thing in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's also, hey, you've probably got a good job. If, if you're good enough and I want to work with you, you've got some opportunity costs. You're doing something else. So my co-founders, two of them, one of them was at McKinsey mm-hmm. before leaving. The other, uh, Fahim, was at Instacart. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are not like low-paying jobs that you're convincing people to leave and take this plunge. So and this is like pre-funding. Like you need these folks to get it off, like yeah, actually get know, the so- platform built and, you know, do the business development, get these clients on board to show some traction to then go to an investor, right? So. Yeah. So that's when it feels the most daunting. Like yeah. you wake up and you're like, God, how are we going to do this? How is anybody going to join me? How is, how are, even when they join, how are we going to do this? So that's the most daunting part. But uh, again, another piece going back to the, the Instacart story is like you build this network of like-minded, yeah. entrepreneurial, very high-performing people with different skill sets. So now, fast forward, add quick two years later, we're 25 people. I think seven of us overlapped at Instacart. Mm-hmm. So you build this network of people who you like working with and um, can can kind of work with for the rest of your life, really, if you want. Like there's the PayPal mafia. Yeah. Our, I oh, won't yeah, take that's... credit for it, but uh, a friend of ours from Instacart has coined the Instacartel. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of this like generation that. of yeah. Instacart folks who are now starting their own things. I think Uber had a similar thing, right? Oh, with yeah. Travis, Vanderzen. They've got people spinning Uber. out. Yeah. Yep, for sure. 
Um, cool. Um, and I guess, uh, so as far as like, um, kind of talking about fast forward, like a year in, I think you guys started raising money or was it like a little more earlier? Was it like early well, on? When we you, we yeah. raised a, a little friends and family, um, in like September. Mm-hmm. So three or four months, three, roughly three months after I left Amazon. Mm-hmm. Then we raised our first like institutional round the following February, March, Led by initialized right, which is Alexis Ohani and Gary Tan. Uh, Alexis's firm with a bunch of awesome partners. And then I think I saw um, Tony Shea's capital. Yeah, Vegas right? Tech okay. Fund. They okay. invested yep. in our first round as well. Um, and what was great then is like we had some traction, we had some customers, we had the beginnings of the platform, and on top of that, Alexis had bought out their advertising before for his net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which Can't is a cause near and dear to his heart. But he had he had been exposed to how shitty the experience is in all this Googling and how easy AdQuick can make it. So he was he got the business right away. Gary Tan had this great tweet about they're excited about file cabinet industries when a lot of the kind of group thinking in Silicon Valley is like they chase a lot of the shiny things in my opinion, which is AR, VR, AI, ML. Like and those are great. Obviously, those are spectacular technologies, but what about some intermediate innovation and the fact that people are still spending you know, tons of time in spreadsheets and attachments in this industry? And so I'm not a developer. I'm not technical. So I'm much more uh, like drawn. Like Sohanian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm much more drawn to areas that have sort of bits and atoms rather than just bits and meaning just code rather than something that's impacting the real world. Mm-hmm. So Instacart's a great example of that. And then when I look at a lot of the yeah. huge tech successes over the past five years, they are that bringing offline things online, Uber, Airbnb. Yep. Um, so these are all things that are kind of in my wheelhouse and that we're also doing with AdQuick is like it touches the real world. Things are happening in the real world. We're just using modern technology to accelerate that. Mm-hmm.